This is a conversation with Antonio Castro Neto, who has been called the godfather of graphene. He is the director of the Center of Advanced 2D Materials and co-director of the Institute for Functional Intelligent Materials, both at the Univer National University of Singapore. There, Antonio is the Distinguished Professor in the Department of Material Science, Engineering and Physics, as well as a professor at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. He earned his PhD in Physics at the University of Illinois. Antonio has co-founded three startups in Singapore, all in graphene, 2D materials, made advanced materials and graphene watts. He is full of energy, especially as he chose to record this at 10 p.m. Singaporean time. His passion really comes through. In this conversation, he tells us how he was at the first ever meeting of scientists after graphene's isolation in 2004, what graphene is, the different types of graphene like powder and films and their properties, how poor quality graphene inspired him to co-found 2D materials, applications at his startups like graphene Kevlar helmets for military and motorcycle use, and graphene in lithium sulfur batteries, co-directing a research institute with a Nobel laureate and $200 million in funding, and the future of graphene. I'm Sung Shu, and this is Materially Better. This podcast is a series of conversations about new performance materials and their applications. For the first time in generations, I believe that new materials will play a big role in unlocking innovation and solving pressing problems. And now here's Antonio Castro Neto. There is so much you're working on that I want to get into, but first, uh, what is graphene and what are some of the properties that people often talk about? Yeah, so uh, graphene is essentially a monolayer of carbon, which means a one atom thin material made out of pure carbon organized in a honeycomb lattice structure. And um, it has some uh, very interesting properties, like it's uh, it conducts electricity and heat extremely well. It has a very strong, very large uh, uh, young modulus or spring constant. So the bonding between the carbon atoms are very strong, actually stronger than diamond. And uh, it also, because it's just one atom thin, is extremely flexible. So you can say, you know, we used to say that graphene is just pure surface. It has no bulk. It's just the thinnest material you can think of. Yeah. What led to your early interest in graphene? I'm a theoretical physicist by training. So, and um, in the early days of graphene, what interested me was the electronic properties because the electrons uh, in graphene, they not, they don't propagate uh, in the same way uh, electrons propagate, propagate in other materials like metals and so on. So, you know, usually the, in a metal like gold, silver, copper, zinc, whatever, uh, to a good approximation, you can think of electrons as free particles, like moving, they have a mass, they have a momentum and they move around uh, pretty much freely. Uh, and they obey, you know, 
to a large degree uh, a sort of classical description. Of course, there are quantum mechanical particles, but they are described in first approximation as classical particles. Now, graphene is completely different. The electrons uh, there, they don't have mass. They have speed, but they don't have mass. Uh, and uh, they are uh, highly quantum mechanical in nature. So um, in some, uh, you know, it mimics the properties of particles in uh, high energy physics. Uh, so the, the initially, uh, for me, uh, trying to understand how these electrons behave was the main uh, push to look into graphene. From that early research, uh, how have you seen the, the research for graphene change and how has your interest in graphene changed uh, over time? Yeah, so, you know, uh, it's very interesting, you know, it's one of the things of being in the right place, doing the right thing, uh, you know, and all this, you know, uh, maybe coincidence. At the time, uh, you know, this was 2004, I was very interested in graphite. And of course, uh, graphene is derived from graphite by when you take uh, graphite apart, uh, graphite is essentially stack of graphene layers. So the starting point to study uh, graphite is graphene. So I was studying graphite at the time, and then uh, I saw the paper by uh, Andre Geim and Kostya Novoselov, and um, I said, wow, okay, so this is something I, I can understand, and it looks very interesting, and I jumped on it. So I remember, you know, very well, this was late 2004, around October, November, something like this. And then um, in March 2005, there was a, a, a meeting of the American Physical Society uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, there was the first graphene session ever on a scientific meeting. And uh, I was lucky enough to be present. There were maybe 15 people in a room, very tiny <laughs> room, very few people. Uh, and But all the people who were in that room that day uh, actually had a, a big impact in the field. They were like the, the founders of the field. Andre Geim was there. That's where I, when I met Andre Geim uh, initially. Uh, Mealy Dresselhaus, Philip Kim, you know, all these people were just sitting there and talking about a material that was just essentially uh, brought to light just a few months earlier. And um, at the time, I was a professor in the United States, and, and I had this opportunity to see the whole field grow exponentially in a very short period of time, you know, maybe 2005, 2006, instead of 15 people, you had already 50 people, and then next year, 100 people, and then, you know, 1,000 people, and this was very, very fast. Uh, there was a, 
uh, a whole community uh, of scientists who were at the time working on carbon nanotubes and graphite and fullerenes, all this carbon related community who were ready to move into graphene. So there was this huge motion of this community towards graphene. And uh, I was very lucky to see the whole thing that finally got the Nobel Prize in 2010. And I was there at the Nobel Prize. And so it was amazing to see and, and, and to live through this, this uh, sort of uh, uh, revolution in material science. It, it was uh, very interesting and, and, and uh, unforgettable, yeah. Yeah, it really is amazing when you think about the way you describe those early meetings. I mean, 15 people, 15 researchers in a room. Um, and as you said, the impact that they have had since, it almost seems like, you know, that sort of exponential growth in interest is very much like a startup or um, that gets traction or an industry that gets traction. And, and I don't think there's many materials, perhaps um, even historically, where you could think of that kind of interest ramping up as quickly as it did. Um, so, so that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, it, it is true. It was very fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just for folks that don't know, just wanted to clarify carbon nanotubes being uh, effectively sort of uh, um, uh, graphene that's uh, one sheet of graphene that's like folded up and, and wrapped into a, into a cylinder and fullerenes being the spherical form of single layer um, graph, graphene, if, if I'm getting that correct. Yes, yes. Yep. Just for folks that uh, weren't sure about that. Um, how did you get the name, the godfather of graphene? Oh, I guess because Andre Gaim and Kose Novoselov were the parents and I was the godfather. <laughs> That's great. Some, some, some reporter called me that name. <laughs> and I guess that's the reason. <laughs> that, that's great. Um, and yeah, we'll come back to that. I mean, you've had that history with, um, with, with both of those Nobel laureates. And, uh, and now you have obviously active um, research with one of them. So we'll come back to that as well. Right. What are the different types of graphene then, and what are they uh, used for? So, uh, you know, the very early on, we realized that th this material had a huge number of possibilities to be used in a, a big number of things. But, you know, it took us maybe 10 years to get to understand the science of this material, right? So. And the reality is that you cannot develop technology if you don't understand the science, right? So, uh, and so, you know, for 10, 15 years, uh, we've been understanding the material to more, to a bigger, bigger degree of detail to the point that now we, we really understand it and, and we really know what this material is capable of. Right. So, so the science is one part of the story. The other part of the story, of course, is uh, how do you use this material on something which is useful? It can be, you uh, can it can be commercialized and so on and so forth. So, uh, science is much faster than commercialization, right? So, uh, 
semiconductors is a big example of that, right? So in the 1950s, essentially, people really understood extremely well how semiconductors work, but they only became uh, uh, really like a commonplace industrially in the 1970s. So it took around 20 years. And I, graphene is just following the same kind of uh, journey, you know? So now we're getting to the level of maturity that this material can be really used in interesting things. And it it's already being used. It's being used in, in composite materials. It's being used in construction. It's being used in, in uh, electronics. It's being used in many, many, many different things. So, um, Graphene is making its way into people's life, but in a very sort of invisible manner, right? So, uh, and I think that uh, we passed this uh, period of hype uh, about the material, uh, and now we are uh, on a very steady and, and growth in terms of where this material can be applied. And there are many industries around the world uh, using this material. So I read just the other day that Ford has something like 5 million cars uh, today that have graphene in some sort of component, uh, engine covers and, and other various things. So uh, right. it already probably touches people's lives in, in, in some way. Um, yeah. So... I just wanted to drill in a little bit there um, on the different types. Could you talk a little bit about, say, graphene powders versus um, yeah. yeah, powders, nanoplatelets being being the powder form? Um, you've got uh, you've got films, you've got wafers. Could you talk a little bit about those different types and 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 why they're different and 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 how they're different? Yeah. So technically, of course, graphene is one atom thin uh, layer of graphite, right? It's pure carbon and so on. Now, and, uh, in practice, so there are, let's say, different grades of graphene, uh, and there are different methods of making graphene, right? So, and different starting points as well. So raw materials from which you make graphene. So, of course, as I mentioned, graphite, one way to make graphene is that you just take this stack of cards, which is graphite, and you break it apart. And then you separate this uh, and uh, you make graphene powder, right? Or you can create graphene in solution or something like this. So, of course, when you are talking about a mineral like uh, graphite, uh, you cannot separately separate this 100%. You cannot break it completely 100%. You can, but it would take you know ages to do that. So industrially, uh, from the practical perspective, you can break this down to a few layers. And then you have some sort of statistical distribution of number of layers, size of the layers, and so on. But this is no different, for, an insta for instance, from the oil industry. So for instance, if you think of crude, oil so you take crude oil from the ground uh you know it's not very useful you have to refine it and when you refine the oil you have the different products kerosene 
uh, airplane, uh, fuel, gasoline, and so on and so forth. And they all come from the same material, which is crude. And what's the difference between them is essentially molecular weight. Is the, essentially the size of the molecules. And you don't have a 1% you know, uh, a quantity of a given material. It's always some statistical distribution. So when you produce graphene powder, it's the same thing. You are producing uh, a different number of layers, which is equivalent to different, num different molecular weight uh, of the material. So there is some almost one-to-one -one correspondence to oil production and oil refining. So this is one uh, uh, way to get graphene. Essentially, you, you have graphite, which is very uh, common material all over the globe, and then you, you, you break it apart. So this one. The other one is graphene film. Uh, and graphene film, the starting point is completely different. You actually start with hydrocarbons that you get from refining crude oil. And then uh, using uh, uh, essentially catalytic reactions on a metal surface, you can grow films, okay? So these films, uh, they are, they can be monolayer, they can be more than one layer as well. And they usually polycrystalline. So, uh, which means that, you know, what you have is grains, which are, put together on a continuous film. And these grains are oriented in different ways relative to each other. So, and of course, when you have powder, you have single crystals. The whole, the whole flake is one crystal. In the films, you have polycrystalline structure. So each one of these graphenes, let's say, have their own utility and uh, their own applications, right? But the fundamental, uh, uh, let's put this way, the fundamental element of all this is a single layer of carbon, atomically thin. It's behind uh, these, uh, all these different types of, of graphenes, let's say. Yeah, and one of the things you touched on, so making the the films, which I understand uh, as a side point, are also sort of far earlier in their stage of adoption, the amount of graphene used, um, also higher, higher cost. But um, to make those films from hydrocarbons, there are some alternates uh, that are emerging, right? And, and either in uh, certainly low TRL, but uh, either in the research stage or even trying to be commercialized where um, you're taking uh, more sustainable feedstocks um, because graphene being made of carbon, there are there are other ways yes. to to source that carbon instead of from hydrocarbons. Yeah, in principle, anything containing carbon can be made into into graphene. The the question is always going to be purity, how pure this is, because you want the highest purity, you want the largest amount of carbon, and uh, how crystalline the final material really is, right? So, yes, absolutely. There are many ways uh, of doing that. Uh, as long as you have uh, carbon, you can make graphene. So you also direct research 
at the Center for Advanced 2D Materials. Uh, what is the focus of the research that uh, that that lab does? Yeah, so the, the Center for Advanced 2D Materials at the National University of Singapore uh, was created uh, 12 years ago. So it's a very mature research center and uh, it, it had a, a big impact in, in, in the area of 2D materials. Graphene is just one of thousands of other 2D materials that uh, exist. And uh, we probably have not even studied a hundred of those. And so it's a huge number of different materials. So uh, in our center, what we uh, were interested in the early days was exactly trying to understand the basic physical and chemical properties of these 2D materials going beyond graphene, right? Even looking beyond graphene. And of course, uh, uh, we have reached uh, a degree of maturity that now we're even looking at uh, how to take this knowledge or, or about 2D materials, about graphene and so on, and actually make that into products that you can take to the market, right? So a lot in the early days, we're very focused on the basic science. Nowadays, we're very focused on uh, the uh, utility, on making uh, uh, products uh, that are useful and interesting for everybody's life. And, um, so just to give you an idea, uh, probably we had in this period of time more than 200 invention disclosures on, on you know, how to use these materials into applications. Well, so, and, that's, and, and, and that was at the center alone? Yeah, this is just the center. All right, well, that's, yeah, that's a lot. Um, let's move on to those applications then, you know, uh, and your 2D material startups. Uh, so the first startup you co-founded was uh, was 2DM. Um, what does right. 2DM do, and and what is uh, yeah. your role there? So this this company has an interesting story. Uh, you know, never I never thought I would start a company in my life. This, you know, my interest was always science, and I never thought I would do that. What happened was almost like necessity. You know. Um, what happened is that uh, we didn't want to produce graphene, but we wanted to study graphene. And then we started buying graphene for from several producers around the world. And uh, we realized very quickly, we probably bought graphene from a hundred producers or something like that. And then we, we quickly realized we're buying graphite you know, not graphene. Uh, we're buying sometimes good graphite, sometimes very bad graphite, but never graphene, right? And, and it was very clear to us that there was a sort of need for someone to produce uh, uh, this material so we could use it, you know, doing research uh, in the center. So uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, probably eight years ago, uh, I recruited a, a, 
someone, uh, uh, Ricardo Oliveira, who was who was a, a research fellow in, in the institute to develop a method uh, to produce graphene. And then uh, we looked we looked at literature and we're not happy with the methods that people were using, and we inv invented our own method. And this method became essentially the basis for this company. So this company now essentially is uh, it, it's seven years old already. This company is producing uh, uh, very high quality graphene in uh, in tone scale. So it's incorporated here in Singapore. It's producing here in Singapore, and uh, the company is uh, interacting with many other companies around the world in developing applications of, of graphene. So it was created out of need. It was not something that, uh, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to create a company right now. I mean, we need, had this need. And, uh, you know, the, the research fellow is now the CTO of the company. So now he is not only involved in, let's say, the the science part, but he's more involved in the market. Uh, uh, and into the product uh, uh, of uh, graphene applications. So your role now is you were a co-founder. Um, are you? Uh, how much? How are you engaging usually these days with the company? Yeah, no, I, I'm not an executive or anything like this. I'm just a, a, a founder and shareholder of the company. I, I don't deal with the everyday things of the company. I don't sign checks or anything like that. But of course, I'm in the board of the company and I follow very closely what's going on. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, you mentioned the quality of graphene and, and the some of these other suppliers, um, or most of them supplying graphite. Um, when you say quality, does that mean, uh, does that have a, stand, a standard definition of that, right? Below like 10 layers is yeah. kind of few layer graphene. Can you talk a bit about yeah. the, what, so, what quality so graphene looks like? Yeah, so this was a big issue in the early days. Uh, you know, what do you mean by quality, right? So you need to define that. So in fact, we worked very hard uh, in, in uh, uh, defining that in terms of the purity, the carbon content, the number of layers, the crystallinity, the size of the material and uh, all these things that characterize uh, the material. And in fact, uh, Singapore was probably the first country in the world to issue a standard for graphene. Uh, and we worked on that. So actually, it happened in our labs that we developed that. Uh, then uh, a few years ago, ISO uh, also launched its own standard, which uh, essentially uh, it's very close to the ones that we launched in Singapore. Uh, we, uh, you know, for us, quality is fundamental. Actually, quality is what drove us to start a company on graphene because, you know, we needed quality material to work with and we could not find in the market. That must be great that you're able to contribute to, to, to the development of that ISO standard as well. Um, how are the 
powders from 2DM different to competitors? And you guys are obviously um, at more at the premium end of the market in terms of pricing. How do you, you know, and, and can you talk a bit more about what that quality enables and, and how that's different? Yeah, no, there are certain, again, you know, quality defines the application, right? So if you have, uh, just give you an example, if you have a very thick, you know, uh, uh, layers of graphene, uh, then you may use into construction, but you cannot use in electronics. If you have metals present in, in, the, uh, in the material, you may use it for a composite, but you cannot use it for batteries and so on and so forth. So the issue of quality uh, the, determines the, the final product, right? Uh, in, in many ways. So the, not, not, not only the, you know, there is an absolute, you cannot say that there is an absolute quality. Quality is a relative thing. And when you're talking about applications, you have to think whether those properties fit the application you are looking for. Yeah, that's a great point about relative quality. And I think bringing up your point before about when graphene was hyped, perhaps, you know, because of the nuance here of quality of types of applications by type, right? There's probably, it can be a bit misleading um, uh, for, for, for folks that aren't as, you know, uh, well-informed about graphene as, as yourself. Um, so, you know, 2DM's graphene composites have been used in, or I've been tested at least, if I understand to, in some polyurethane foams. And I saw in the PDF spec sheet on the site uh, that a lower concentration of graphene actually improved performance. Uh, can you talk about why that is the case? And, I, and, and just for context, I've also seen, uh, I've also heard the Nano Explore uh, founder, uh, Sarush, um, um, I'm, I'm forgetting his setting, but um, the, the, the Nano Explore founder also said that with their graphene as well. Yeah. So, so usually in these types of applications, graphene is additive. So you already have a material. It could be a polymer, epoxy, a resin, or you know, concrete, whatever. And then uh, you add graphene to that in order to get properties that ma that material originally doesn't have. For instance, epoxy, which is a glue, which is used for many, lots and lots of applications, is electrically insulating and it's thermally insulating. But there are applications of epoxy that would be great if you could make the epoxy electrically conducting or thermally conducting. So when you put graphene on the epoxy, you can make that. So you have to control the dispersion. And this is most of the technology is associated in how to you disperse this material on a matrix because you're talking about a nanomaterial. And you know it's not so easy to disperse. Right, so you, how you disperse, what's the quantity you have to put, and so on, to reach good numbers, without losing the you know the original properties of the material, like the you know the epoxy, right? So this is uh, this control over uh, dispersion and 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 uh, and amount 
is what determines the final product. So, for instance, you so you can make epoxy conductive, you can make concrete conductive, you can make materials which are normally um, insulating conductive. And of course, this has a huge advantage for certain applications, right? So it can, graphene is a chemical barrier. So you can use that again on concrete to, to increase the resistance of the concrete against a chemical attack. So if you, if you have this concrete in an in a environment that is chemically very reactive, uh, so graphene can be a solution. So and, uh, this is why it's important to understand the material very well before you know you start using it in application you know people sometimes they have this naive idea that you just go there you put a pinch of salt a pinch of graphene and then you get something great it doesn't work that way <laughs> you know so I mean, it's so it, easy <laughs> yeah it's not that easy and this is why you can make business out of this because this know-how it's uh, it has value let's put it this way just for folks to know you know the concentrations we're talking about here are you know anything from 0.012 percent up to a few percent for these graphene polymer composites right epoxy composites um yes. is, is that kind of correct yes that's correct it's, it's yeah. tiny amounts tiny yeah. amounts yeah tiny amounts but but you're improving the the performance benefits in in various ways um, no, because you know again you are dealing with a nanomaterial so uh, uh, you know, one gram of graphene can cover three football fields. Mm -hmm. If you could make a continuous film, mm -hmm. one gram. So you can imagine, right? So, uh, and in, in many applications, you don't use more than a gram. A gram is, is quite a lot of nanomaterial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One gram of one atom thick carbon. Yeah. Um, so... How much potential is there for improving 2DM's graphene and, and the material properties over time? I think there is always room for improvement. Uh, uh, I, I think that the challenge right now is, is more on, uh, on the industry side because, you know, it's usually, it's, it's quite uh, uh, a challenge to convince, you know, uh, uh, an industry to change their uh, production line and add something new to get, you know, more out of the product. Uh, and so I think that from that perspective, from the scientific perspective, graphene is very mature, but I think that in, in, in the industrial perspective, we're still in the early days, uh, to be honest with you. You know, I think that graphene is, is becoming more present, but it's going to take at least 10 more years for it to be really present on many, many things in our everyday life. It takes time. These things, uh, you know, uh, do not change very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and let's look at a few specific applications. One was um, textile slash um, apparel. And in this case, you know, uh, 2DM, uh, announced a, a graphene aramid, which is a Kevlar uh, composite helmet um, for defense purposes. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this was an interesting uh, story. They, they, you know, usually, you know, helmets using the military are very heavy. If you have ever seen a helmet, you know, it's several kilograms that you have the soldier or the policeman, whatever, has to carry in the head uh, because, you know, the the helmet has has to be able to sustain you know a, a bullet coming at two three hundred meters per second you know uh, and so on and so forth. So the idea was okay. So we know that graphene is great for absorbing shock, um, and this is also related with the physical properties of this material because it's a membrane. So it can easily absorb energy and disperse energy very easily. So, and then of course, to, we thought, why not put this on the helmet? And the, the results are very interesting. So they make helmets which are 20% lighter than normal helmets, but can, that can sustain, you know, uh, a bullet coming from, uh, I don't know, <laughs> some machine gun, uh, you know, in the same way. And for anyone who needs these helmets to stay alive, you know, 20% reduction in weight is a huge number. But again, back to the, you were asking about volume, it's less than one gram per helmet, mm. right? So less than one gram of graphene per helmet can reduce the weight by 20%. It's a huge change. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating. It's, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around that in a sense because it is so yeah, you you're talking about such small amounts having such a big impact. And 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 in terms of like weight on your head, I mean, I've never worn a, a military style helmet, but I could just imagine how much that weighs on your head over time and just it's heavy. Right, right, right. It's heavy. <laughs> yeah, right. And just having to wear that if you're, you know, if, if if even if you're in training, but certainly if you're in battle, like all day, every day for for weeks on end. I mean, that's yeah. that's got to make. But well, now they're they're not they are moving away from military helmets to motorcycle helmets. Mm -hmm. So again, same story, right? If you can make a, a lighter motorcycle helmet with graphene. There is huge advantage for for you know uh, people who like to ride motorcycles, and there's many other types of new mobility, new micro mobility form factors that would probably benefit from that too. Yeah. Is that something that two two DMs are uh, look, looking at next, or is that you yeah. mean, Yep, that's that's exciting. They're, they're they're working on that. Yes, very cool. Um, have you seen any compelling examples of startups using graphene for uh, smart clothing or uh, wearables? There are many, actually, because uh, one of the great properties of this material is that uh, it, it absorbs radiation in the infrared, and uh, which is exactly, you know, the radiation human bodies emit. So, uh, and there are several companies around the world using graphene ink on textiles in order to produce, uh, you know, like smart uh, clothing that, you know, 
keeps your body temperature constant, no matter what. Uh, and if you, on top of this, uh, think that graphene uh, is also conductive, you can use the same ink as a sensor of body function. So you can you can wear something that not only is keeping your the temperature constant, but also monitoring what's happening to your body. So I think that you know, to be honest, I think this is the future. I think that in the future, uh, you know, we're going we're not going to need so many clothing. You know, maybe we just need a few that change shape, change color, whatever, and we can choose whatever we want depending on our mood, you know, uh, or something like that. And at the same time, send information to our, uh, you know, smartphone about how our heart rate, our whatever, you know, whatever information uh, you want. So I think this is, it's the way to go, actually. One of the other companies you've co-founded um, was Graphene Watts, which is developing lithium sulfur batteries uh, with graphene. Why focus on lithium sulfur as yeah, a chemistry? So, so this is uh, one of the things, it's my personal interest in sustainable materials. Right, so as you know, you know the current battery technology is uses a lot of metals like cobalt and nickel and so on, and these materials are, you know, there is a social part of this, right? Because they usually these materials are extracted in mining poor countries where they use children to dig the ground, all those. But also as waste is terrible, it's a terrible waste, you know, heavy metal go into the water system and so on and so forth. So, you know, I've been always mindful of, of the environmental issues. And, uh, you know, we try to, I try the best I can to look at technologies which lead to, uh, you know, sustainability and are environmentally friendly. And of course, uh, sulfur is a very uh, a common material uh, on Earth, right? The volcanoes produce huge amount of sulfur. Uh, and uh, it has this theoretically, uh, you know, sulfur lithium batteries has have the uh, huge energy capacity, store a lot of energy. And um, so, there, but there is a huge scientific problem with those batteries, which is that when you put the battery to work, it produces these sulfides. And these sulfides end up uh, short-circuiting the battery eventually, right? So, and we found a way to include graphene into battery and graphene circumvent, stop this, this sulfide shuttling problem, how, how it's called. So now we have batteries that have, are running for more than 7,000 cycles 
you know, and this is a breakthrough. If you look at normal batteries, you know, when you buy them, they only run a few hundred cycles, maybe a thousand cycles, but 7,000 cycles is a unheard of. And it's just because it's a combination of, you know, uh, uh, materials, which is uh, very special. So all the technology is essentially finding out how to put these materials together, make they cooperate to get the result that you want. So this graphene watts was exactly created with that purpose. Yeah, seven thousand cycles is is a lot. I mean, if you're if the car's doing three hundred miles, that's you know two million mile car, right? Like, what are the what are the challenges barriers to, before you can see uh, lithium ion uh, lithium sulfur batteries with graphene being commercialized? I think that the greatest challenge these days is that the 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 battery space is overcrowded. Right, so essentially, people only talk about making gigafactories and stuff like that. So, and you know, there is mm -hmm. no big evolution on the the electrochemistry technology of batteries. So, people want to produce lots and lots and lots of batteries because the market is demanding that, right? But in terms of the evolution of the batteries, the problem has been very slow. And they, you know, companies want to make money fast. So they are not really investing, you know, a lot in new technologies in, in terms of batteries. You know, if you talk to the big battery producers and you try to convince them, they tell you, oh, look, we already have seven batteries in the pipeline. You know, your battery is going to be number 10, <laughs> right? There is, so there is the whole, uh, let's say, uh, uh, financial aspect of this uh, industrial uh, chains, which is quite complicated. So, you know, the only way to get into this is to find niche applications and introduce yourself there and and grow doing niche applications instead of trying to compete directly with traditional uh battery technology i couldn't agree more and you know you can see still a nanotech as an example of that spending like 10 years there or thereabouts in r&d and now they finally have their silicon anode um technology in uh, a small wearable device a small um yeah uh, fitness wearable called whoop um, with bands, but uh, is um, graphene watts? Are you starting to uh, find or like talk to uh, folks and partners about uh, in uh, integrating the the battery into potential niche markets? Yeah, so actually, you know, we we are talking to a lot of people. Uh, we're very interested in finding new markets, new applications. Um, we're building a, a state-of-the-art uh, uh, battery production lab at the National University of Singapore. This is, it's going to be an amazing facility. And uh, we're going to be able to produce uh, enough uh, prototypes 
to actually to share with several different industries uh, in order to gather more interest. Because uh, it, it, nowadays, it's not just the technology. You really have to have the product and people have to, to try your product to see how good it is. So it's an extremely competitive you know, uh, market and uh, you have to, to, to be at the cutting edge. Otherwise, you have no chance to, of survival. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so much funding, so much interest, but so much promise in the space. And I think that's yeah, why so many folks are so excited. It, it's about. a very, very important for the world. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, um, couldn't agree more. Uh, you're also a co-director, co as you mentioned before, at the, at the Institute for Functional uh, Intelligent Materials uh, with the Nobel Laureate uh, Sir Constantine Novoselov. Um, yeah. What are you most excited about in your work there uh, with him? Yeah, so that's a completely different area. Uh, I mean, it's still material science, uh, but you know, in the in in the new institute, we're looking uh, not only at two-dimensional materials, but we are looking at materials in general. And uh, we are using machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually create uh, uh, materials on demand, uh, but that have out of equilibrium properties, which means, and this is why we call functional intelligent materials, which are materials that respond on their own to environmental changes okay so um one example we created a, a new class of 2d materials called 2d electrolytes uh, and these materials are such that uh, when you put them in water they have these functional groups that ionize and uh but they the material is flat in water like membranes, 2D membranes floating water. But then when we change the pH of the water, these materials actually fold on their own. They transform chemical energy into mechanical energy, mm -hmm. and then they can fold. And you ask what this is good for. This is good for things like drug delivery, for instance. So you can encapsulate some medicine which is sensitive to pH and big example is insulin. One of the reasons you cannot, you know, diabetic people cannot take insulin pills is that insulin is very sensitive to the pH. When you, you swallow, when it goes through your stomach, the, the low pH of the stomach essentially destroys the insulin. So you can imagine a, a pill which is encapsulated with these 2D electrolytes that when it's at low pH in the stomach, it's encapsulated. So the, and there is this chemical barrier that doesn't allow the acids to attack the insulin. But then when it gets to the intestine, which has higher pH, then it opens up and delivers the insulin to the, uh, to the intestine. So, it, it's a kind of, uh, the idea is that the material it, it is its own sensor and knows what to do. 
uh, when the environmental conditions change. So, and we're doing this for many, many different things. And the way we're doing this is actually using, you know, machine learning. So heavy computation uh, to actually uh, predict, you know, what kinds of materials that can be used, in, in how you put these materials together and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, it's uh, again, material science, but with a more, artificial intelligence, machine learning perspective. Yeah, that's really fascinating the way you describe that. And and just, I forgot to mention too, you know, um, you guys, uh, the, the the research center has secured significant funding from uh, NUS. Is it, uh, I think it was a hundred million dollars, uh, Singaporean dollars, is that correct? Yes, a hundred million dollars from the Ministry of Education yeah. and a hundred million dollars from the national, from the university. Um, how do you think graphene might change how we live and work in the next, let's call it 15 years? I think as what I said before, I think what it's going to be a silent presence. I think essentially it will be part of our lives. It's going to be a common thing, but we'll not see it, you know, like any nanomaterial. You cannot see it, you know, it's going to be present everywhere. It's going to be like plastics, you know, hopefully not with the environmental issues of plastics, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to have this kind of, uh, uh, you know, presence. And I don't think it's going to be with much fanfare. I think it's going to be something that will happen, you know, slowly and continuously over the next, you know, decade. Yeah, it's, uh, the twenty twenties is going to be an exciting time for for new materials for sure. Um, just to wrap up, then you know, how can heat people um, help you and and what you're doing? You know, I think that there are so many, we're doing so many different things, right? So, you know, I think that I I, I hope that people uh, can join forces to develop material science the next level because the reality of the world today we have so many issues so many challenges you know uh, environmental challenges energy challenges water challenge and there is no way to solve these problems uh, without creating new materials that can address these issues directly so it's not a software problem Software can help, but it's not a software problem. It's a hardware problem. It's how we we modify, uh, uh, you know, the way materials interact with each other, and we get the properties that we want. So materials are not static elements of our world anymore. They are dynamic elements of the world, and I think that uh, uh, you know it's very important that. Uh, people uh, participate and you know uh, meet the challenge of the world issues today. You know, I think uh, it's our responsibility as scientists, engineers, human beings, even to actually face the challenges and not be afraid of of uh, you know finding solutions because the world is not in a nice place right now you know, global warming and pollution and all those things. And I think that uh, uh, we, we have this responsibility 
with our planet. That's really well said. Um, and we also have, as you pointed out, you know, these, these new tools, um, mat new materials and, and others to, to help with that. Uh, so, you know, I don't think folks should feel, feel optimistic, but be acting and, and, and contributing to that in some way. Um, so how can listeners connect with you, um, LinkedIn or, or otherwise online? So, uh, just go to the, you know, Institute website, to the center website. Uh, you know, we are uh, easy to find and, uh, you know, and contact us if, if you are interested in uh, joining the center, working with us, collaborating with us. You know, we're open and, we're, you know, we very much uh, like people's uh, people with new ideas who are interested in uh, making a mark in this world. Fantastic. I'll link to those in the episode description. Um, thank you so much, Antonio. This has been thank a you. really great chat. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Thanks so much for listening. Materially Better is a new podcast and I am a first-time podcaster. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you left a rating on the Spotify or Apple podcast app or like and comment on YouTube. Also, following the show and sharing this episode with a friend really helps as well. So thanks again and see you on the next one.